Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by FM Investments. Go to fm-invest.com to learn more about their quant active strategy for large cap U.S. stocks. That's fm-invest.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Ben, when you think concentrated manager, stock selector, you probably think of a value investor, no? Buffett style, Munger, that value, and yes, value investing, not necessarily growth and not necessarily quant either. Yeah, those are two, those are two things that you don't see that often. Number one is quant growth, and number two is concentrated growth. I wonder why that is. Is it is it because it's so it's been so difficult to beat the NASDAQ? That can't be it. Or maybe I'm just making that up. Maybe there are, and I just don't know about it. It it maybe. Maybe the range of outcomes is wider in growth stocks between the, the really big winners and the big losers. That could be it. Yeah, that, that's a good question. It's also, I, I don't want to step in too much from this episode, but I, I think in my experience, large cap stocks, have to, beating like the S&P 500, for instance, has to be one of the hardest benchmarks in the world to beat. That, that's my personal opinion on this thing. And we talked to a portfolio manager today who, whose fund has managed to beat the S&P and he... Well, Russell 1000 growth. Or Russell, sorry. Close enough. Well, yeah, but it has beat the S&P, and it's interesting to hear his thoughts about this. So, so we talked to Francisco Bedeau today from FM Investments. They use a quant process, but also have a qualitative screen in it be, to make it more concentrated, which, which makes sense. It's almost like the old Joel Greenbat. Remember he had the, his- The magic formula? Yeah, the magic formula, and then you could pick 30 stocks from it or something. It's all, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit, where you have a, an overlay that's the quant screen, but then you also- based on the environment, pick stocks based on your thoughts on how things are going. Here's our conversation with Francisco Bideau. We are joined today by Francisco Bideau. Francisco is a senior portfolio manager at FM Investments. Francisco, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're talking today about the FM Investment Large Cap Focused Fund. And we recently had another focused mutual fund manager on the show. And it, it's very nice speaking to somebody that has conviction because one of the trends in your industry in the mutual fund space has been do no harm or don't don't stray too far from the benchmark. And then, of course, you get something that ends up looking very much like the benchmark. Talk to us a little bit about the genesis of your fund, why the concentration, how long have you been in business and that sort of stuff? Well, I've been managing the same strategy uh, in large cap form and in an all cap form and also as a long short. Our mutual fund is the flagship. And that one is, uh, that's where the ticker is IAFLX comes around. And it's been around for a good 12 years. And performance has been pretty sterling throughout. Uh, if you look at the SMA account for the strategy itself, it's a five-star morning star. And the mutual fund is four stars. And, uh, you know, it's been a great year so far. And the reason for that is that uh, we have a very strong process, which you follow very, very uh, strictly that we call quant active. And you got to wonder, quant active, it's really spelling out, you know, what the process is about. It's part quant, that's phase one, phase two is active. 
And uh, a typical question that I get is, isn't everybody quantactive nowadays? And, the, and my answer to that is, we're different. You know, it's quantactive, but we have a framework to address risk management, to address stock picking, to address all the pieces that go into portfolio management in a very rigorous way, almost that it could be done by a computer, except that we don't trust the computer 100%. For obvious reasons, computers don't know anything about COVID, about the pandemic when it happened, it didn't know anything about Brexit, and so on. You know, so uh, you still need a human in the loop there, but we have a lot of the things really set in a very set framework, which you call quantactive. How much narrowing down does your, if it's a screen or, or whatever it is that, how much narrowing down do you do? And is your universe, I don't know, the Russell 1000 or the SP 500? And then how do you, how much does your process of uh, the quant side of things narrow things down? And then how much is the qualitative side of things from there? Well, the quant side, we start out with about 3000 names, you know, all cap names. And then we are classify them by um, market capitalization and see where they land and so on. But basically, after we apply our screens, we end up typically with about 80 names. And from those names, then you've got to parse it and pick up which are your large caps and your small caps and so on. So um, it's uh, not a fixed cutoff, which we want to have that way. You know, a lot of these quant screens just pick the top 100 names, for example, right? We don't do it that way. And we don't normalize our scores, meaning that when the scores are bad, we want it to tell us the truth, the things are bad. So uh, if we only have 12 candidates and it has happened, we, ha we saw that over COVID and so on, only 12 names we can pick from, then we want to see it that way because it's telling us something about the market environment. But overall, if I have to pick an average number for you, it'll be 80, about 80 names. So if, if, you get into a, if you get in a situation like that where you only have a handful of names, are you overweighting those names or are you, are you raising cash in that instance? No, no. What we do is uh, we look at what we own in, in contrast to what is being suggested to bring in into the portfolio. So we look at two things. We look at the risk. Uh, you know, if we, if we decide to bring a certain company in, how does it impact the risk of the portfolio? Does my tracking error, projected tracking error, does it go up? Does it make it higher? Does it diversify the risk a little more? If I have a lot of IT and I bring in a bank, you know, that's going to take the risk down a little bit. So uh, we look what is proposed by the quant system, and then Alex and myself use common sense, basically, right? And our years of experience to really nail it. And it's consistent. We've done the same thing since the beginning of time. Francisco, this is a growth-oriented strategy. And so the, screen, the things that you're screening for, uh, I'm guessing, you can correct me if I'm wrong, probably look different than what a traditional value investor might screen for. So I'm sure you're looking at, you know, maybe typical things that that everyone would look for, like things like margin. But what else is in the process that might be distinct from how you think about it versus what somebody else might look at? That is really a, a good point. And I would like to uh, emphasize that we're not strictly a growth portfolio. We look at earnings and revenues acceleration. So we're looking at companies that, you know, at a certain point in time, they're acting like really strong growth companies. It could be Campbell Soup, it can be Clorox, it can be American Express, it could be McDonald's or Starbucks, and so on, as well as it can be Netflix or Meta or Apple. So uh, it does tend to overweight a lot of the growth companies, but it doesn't mean that we can't pick a value company because we're looking at the earnings and revenues momentum. You know, we believe that over time, this leads to price momentum. And it's, it's important to note that we're not chasing any trends. We're looking at fundamentals first. So we look at earnings and revenues acceleration. Why is it 
that are doing what they're doing, the wires are accelerating. And you can go back and reverse engineer that and you can see that these companies, for example, Campbell's Soup, to give you an example, a few years back, they came up with a new line of organic products and all of a sudden they became one of the companies in our, in our, you know, in our screen. Is it typically a growth company? Absolutely not. But at that point in time, they were acting like a growth company and that's when we want to hold them. Is there any valuation component where you say, you might say, hey, this, this company's doing great, their earnings and their revenue are accelerating. However, ever, you know, the market seems to have, the, have a consensus view because it's trading at 30 times sales. Is there any sort of risk management on how much you're willing to pay for this earnings acceleration? Well, it depends. And it all depends, you know, what the name is and what our, how strong our scores are, uh, which it comes from the quant system, obviously. But then Alex and myself sit down and really uh, have a, you know, a heart to heart about the company and about the, the, all the mental numbers and everything else that is not captured by the, uh, the quant screen, which includes the macro environment and so on. So uh, we do look at valuation, but it's not in the quant screen. It's a discretionary component that we look afterwards. For example, if we're looking at Apple, you know, if Apple came in today, it's been in the portfolio for a long time, but Apple is 30 times. You just remind me of that. So it's 30 times. It's a time to buy Apple. And, the, you know, depending on what the portfolio looks like at the time, in terms of outcap capture, in terms of what sector it's exposed and so on, then it might not be the best choice. It's, it's a very uh, eclectic view of what happens in the active layer afterwards. And the important thing to realize is that I created the active layer. I mean, the quant layer. So uh, I know his strengths and his weaknesses. So when Alex and I talk, I know, you know, it's, it's talking not because we are, you know, shooting the breeze or anything like that. We know where the strategy is probably going to benefit from any holes that the, uh, that the quant layer might have or any blind sites, right? Because it's looking back at data. And here's a market with a rising interest rate environment, for example. Well, where is that? There have been interest rate increases over time, but which ones are the same as this one? You can go back and not find one single example. So for that reason is that we have the two layers. All right. So this is a bit of a two-parter. Uh, so my first question is, and then I'll answer, ask the follow-up. My first question is, what's the, what's the turnover on, on, on this sort of strategy? So you're active. How, how active? It's very active. I think uh, in terms of turnover, it's high. It's over 100%. Uh, but we only have 27 names. And a lot of that, you know, the, and it depends on your compute turnover. Uh, those 27 names, 27 do not lead the component by year's end. It's not that. It's that outflows and outflows make the turnover look the way it does. So if you look at the names that we had uh, at the beginning of the year and the names that we have now, we're probably different about four names. But there's been a lot of movement in the flows that creates the turnover. So Apple, for example, you said Apple's been in the portfolio for a long time. Uh, one of the best performing companies of all time. Certainly one of the best companies of all time. Um, however, uh, Apple is not necessarily growing the way that they once were, at least, at least on the top line. Now there's all sorts of levers that they can pull. Um, who knows what the next $10 billion category that they seem to, uh, create every, every few years, they really are in a class of their own, but I was looking at revenue growth year over year. It's been negative year over year for the last three quarters. Is Apple entering a different phase of its of its life cycle, for lack of a better word? Right. Uh, I don't believe so. I think, you know, uh, it's easy for us to get spoiled <laughs> and think that they can sure. maintain that, you know, uh, for years to come. But, you know, it's, it's okay for a, uh, an incredible company like that to take a pause, you know, to actually uh, go, go down to earth for a year or a year or so. And I, that's where I see Apple. If you look, for example, the last earnings report, 
then you see that the uh, the services sector actually did quite well and it's growing. Mm-hmm. That's the what took a hit was basically hardware, iPhones, uh, Macs, and so on. Anything that's hardware took a hit, you know, decreased, but the services went up. That's the Apple TV and so on, and the music and and you name it, right? So uh, these things tend to be cyclical, and every once in a while, both cycles for the hardware and the services align, and you get a bigger wave and you get a bigger bump. Right. We love those when they come over, but it's not always the case. I think the important thing is just to survive when the hardware is not doing great and just keep pushing on the ones that are doing great. And by the way, just to add more, more color on, on Apple, it would not be this is not the first time that it's done this. It, it had it had uh, negative revenue growth for a couple of quarters in 2016. It did it again in 2019. So this is not without precedent. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It tends to go in cycles. But if you look at the uh, the Intel report, the latest Intel report, I think there is a quote there about the PC cycle bottoming out. So uh, their numbers are a little bit more encouraging. So if you map that to Apple and you map that to the fact that the consumer in the U.S. is spending, you know, look at the uh, MasterCard report. They're spending on cruises. They're spending on the, a lot of things that are purely discretionary. So despite the high interest rates, you know, uh, things are turned around. So these things are cyclical. We expect the hardware to come back up. I have a, I have a, I'm doing this podcast on a Mac. I have AirPods, an Apple Watch, and an iPhone, so I'm not going to question Apple anytime soon. <laughs> Personally, from my experience dealing with active managers, I think the large cap U.S. space is probably one of the hardest places to outperform. Uh, I don't know if it's the research or the fact that the U.S. makes up so much of the global market cap, and it's gotten so much more concentrated in recent decades, but it, it, it seems like that that space is is much harder to outperform. What has your experience been like trying to do this in a more concentrated manner? And how do you feel about investing in large cap or all cap stocks? Because, I mean, I guess you could say all, all cap is Russell 3000, but it's still dominated by the, the biggest stocks. So what is your feeling about how difficult it is to outperform in this space? Right. Yeah, it's not easy, but it's easier than small cap. Why, why do you say that? Oh, because a lot of the small cap companies that have the same amount of uh, analyst coverage and analysis that the large caps have. So uh, the markets tend to be, in, if you want to use a more academic term, a little bit more efficient as you go up in market size. So uh, there's a lot more research on it, a lot of more good data available for the big companies, right? And for the small companies, you go and maybe one analyst or no analyst follows them. So what are you relying on? on the last earnings reports and uh, a lot of hope. So uh, there, there are pros and cons to everything. Yes, it is a hard area to outperform in, but I think we found our niche there. And our niche is to be concentrated. Today, we hold 27 names in the mutual fund. And uh, we, we, we are benchmark aware. We know where the Russell 1000 growth is at any point in time. We know that. But we're not focused on tracking it. We just pick the things that we like and we manage our, our risk. So we're not picking something because it's on the benchmark. If you look at our active share, it should be uh, north of 60% for the mutual fund. That's interesting. I've, I've heard, I've, I've actually, I've heard what you just said about small versus large, but it's usually the opposite. That's what People I People usually say, People usually say because there is because there is so much analyst coverage, uh, that's what makes the market much more efficient and therefore difficult to beat. I've never heard anybody say that and then conclude that it's actually easier. So I'd be curious to hear hear a little bit more on that. Sure. I mean, and it all depends on how you treat the benchmark, right? If you treat the benchmark as something that you've got to match, you know, I work with funds that uh, hold 120, 150 names. If you have all that many names, you really have the much of a choice that but to be the bench. You know, and then you find one or two names and try to beat it there, maybe get a 50 beeps here and there. And that's about it. 
The way that we do it is completely different. We don't do that at all. We have 27 names. And there was a point, I kid you not, in the past, I don't remember what year it was, where I have 90% active share. So everything I had was not on the bench. <laughs> so if you pick the right names, then you really have a chance. So you just can't be the benchmark. If you're more concentrated, have more conviction in what you're doing and your process, which we do, Alex and I really believe in what we're doing. And, you know, the, our process has not changed its exception. It's the same scores. It's the same exact ideas, and it's everything is exactly the same. The discretion component does change because market change and evolve, right? So we can't treat the market now as we treated it five years before the interest rates were not going up, right? So it's a different situation, but there's a way to factor that in. I'm curious about your process. You talked about how you, you, you built this model and you created it, and you know and understand the model, but occasionally you'll get more active with it. So does that mean that you disagree with your model at times when it'll say this this stock looks great, it should go in the portfolio on the quant side of things, and you say, I don't think so, I know, because the macro environment or whatever else is going on. How many times how often are you disagreeing with the model that you created? That's a really good question. And you're gonna be surprised by my answer. The answer is never. And I can tell you why. <laughs> and I can tell you why in a second, because I designed the process in such a way that it gives you choices. So if I need three names to come out of the portfolio and it's giving me 10, you know, the quality is going to give me 10. I'm making this up, right? So I don't have to argue with it too much. I just got to find the one that we both all agree. The model agrees because they're giving me 10, and I'm going to pick from those 10. I'm not going to stray from that. So we call that what the screen delivers, the approved list, and we never, absolutely never stray from the approved list. So we're never overriding the model. The model is always giving me, here are your 10 choices across different sectors. Pick three. And then we sit down and do our analysis and say, these are the best for the portfolio. So we're never disagreeing with it. It's done on purpose. This is a good question, you know, because if you look at a lot of quant products, you know, they, they override their processes every, every so often. We don't. We design the process in such a way that it gives us options. So we don't have to do those overwrite. Francisco, you mentioned uh, earnings acceleration a bunch of times. One of the craziest earnings acceleration in terms of guidance that I've seen, especially from a large cap company recently is NVIDIA. I think they guided from like maybe seven to 11 billion or it, it was really outrageous. I would guess that guidance does not factor in because that's not necessarily quantitative. It's just where management sets their their goal, moves, you know, sets their goalposts. How do you think about what what companies have to say about their future earnings potential? Is that is that completely noise, or is that is there a quantitative aspect of that that you take seriously? Yeah, there's both a quantitative aspect and an active aspect to that. So the in the quantitative uh, score, we have a score we call the F score, F as in fundamental score. And that's really the main driver of the portfolio. We use the F score really to handicap the stocks that we like. And after that, you know, we have another score independent of that, which you call the M score, which is a momentum score. But I must clarify that the fundamental score is really the important one. The F, the other score is there to ensure that we're actually being paid for the risk that we take. So uh, the fundamental score, the F score, has about 70 time series to go into it. There's a lot of information. And some of that information is forward-looking information. It's, a, you know, FY1, FY2, forward-looking consensus views for any stock. So some of that does factor into the score itself, into the quant layer. However, we do pay attention to what the company is saying, what, you know, verbally, what's not going into the score, and if there are any concerns. So that's the active side. So it factors in both ways, both on the quant side and on the active side. One, one of the companies that is conspicuously absent from this portfolio, now listen, you're, you're a large growth manager. It's hard to avoid the what what's being called the Magnificent Seven. 
two of them that are not in the portfolio, correct me if I'm wrong, are Tesla and uh, Meta. Can you talk to those? Right. Actually, Meta is in right now. So it's only one. Oh, missing. okay. Yeah. The only one Got that's it. missing there is uh, Tesla. And the reason that Tesla is missing is because it's just not meeting our screen. You know, as I said, mentioned earlier, we do follow a very rigorous process. And Tesla has been in the portfolio in the past. At some point, it fell out of favor. And it had never has come back through the screen. It's not that we don't like the company. It's that we don't think it's a great company. But we would be very foolish to actually override the screen and we know we can pick well from there. So Tesla's not on that screen. So it's not meeting the quant layer. So that's why it's not there. When it does, again, you know, when a company starts behaving the way that we like it, that's our strength that we're going to go and, you know, enter with an entry-level position, which is right in the middle of the pack of the portfolio, not, you know, around two and a half percent. That's right. That position sizing is, was going to be my next question, actually, because a lot of quant strategies, if they're more diversified, will just equal weight a portfolio or maybe market cap weight it. How, how do you handle the weighting of it? Because you have more concentrated portfolio, but you do have higher, higher weightings in your big names. Do, do, do they grow to that size or do you double down on positions at times? So 90% of the names in the portfolio, we try to keep below 6%, that they never get below 6%, 90% of the name count. And the reason that we want to do that is because, in my experience, or many years of experience working for uh, big mutual funds and so on, that you don't want your portfolio to win because of one name. I'd rather that it wins because the portfolio is built well. So with that, it pretty much ensures that, you know, my experience and the way that our quant system works, they'll let any position go over 6%. If they go over 6%, say that as a AMD. And that's how it happened a few times. It goes, oh, here it is. Six and a half percent, almost seven percent, trim it down back to four. Allow it a little bit time to grow and catch a little bit off, you know, take a little bit off the top there. But in general, any name in the portfolio enters at here's a darky name at the centroid. You look at the standard, you know, at, at the bell curve of all the weights in the portfolio, and some are bigger than two and a half, some are less than two and a half, and say that two and a half is right at the center of the bell curve. So that's how we enter. We do not incrementally enter a position. We just slap right into it. And when we exit, we do the same thing. We're gone. Either we like it or not. Here's another, forgive me for another two-part question, but how often are you, how often are you getting inputs? Is it, is it, I imagine it's quarterly as, as companies release earnings. Is that accurate or is there something else that I'm missing? The F-score, which you're referring to, uh, will behave like a step function. It will go flat for a while for about a quarter, right? And then jump when the new numbers come in. But we actually compute our scores on a daily basis, and that's because we also track the consensus views, as I mentioned earlier. And those tend to change on a daily basis, right? So we track those very carefully. So, uh, yeah. So we, we, we have this really, you know, ripply line here, and then it jumps over earnings reports or jumps down or up. That's how it works. So the second part of that question would be, how do you avoid the buy the rumor, sell the news effect? Because... I was always taught that price leads fundamentals, right? That people anticipate or the market anticipates earnings acceleration. Uh, so like, let's use Uber as an example. And now maybe this is short term. You would say this is noise and it's not, it's not significant for how you're managing money. But Uber has been knocking it out of the park, had an incredible run into an incredible earnings report. And the stock is down 10% since it reported earnings, which is that just noise to you? Do you not care about those short-term pullbacks? How do you, how do you think about that? Right. Uh, Uber is not one of our holdings. You know, it, I haven't seen that name in the list for a long time, maybe in a, maybe in a year or two. But just generally speaking. 
yeah, generally speaking, when that happens, you know, we just stress our, our process, right? We look at the numbers first. If the numbers don't match, if, that, if it's not in our approved lift, that means that our quant system is not agreeing. And we don't disagree with the quant system, like I said earlier, right? So that's one thing. Now, assume, for example, that the quant system does agree and we actually buy the company and the company doesn't get rewarded. What do we do with it? Then we've got to wonder, you know, like we went into a situation like that last year with the information technology sector, right? We got, you know, we got creamed. We had a lot of big IT exposure. However, we still end up in the 50%, you know, in the middle of the pack of the Morningstar rankings, you know, we, because we have a good risk management. But, you know, we just held on to the names because the, the scores are, are solid. The market is not rewarding them, but it's just a matter of patience that we can be patient. So if you look at what happened this year, it came back. Boom, there it is. And there we were, right? We didn't have to really reposition the portfolio to take advantage of the, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, inflection point or craze, whatever is going on out there, right? We, we're already positioned for it. We believe that we had good names and we believe that the market was just not doing the right thing and not giving it the right kind of reward, given the acceleration that they had. I assume the, the sales process for the portfolio is similar to the buy and that if, if a company you own does not show up in your quantitative screen anymore, it leaves the portfolio, is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Basically, um, there are two reasons to leave the portfolio. One, that the screen deteriorates, we have a threshold. You know, and they oscillate, they bump around and whoop, all of a sudden a couple of them drop here. And then we got to wonder, are they going to bounce back over the border or that they're permanent? If they're permanently, then, then you know, Alex and I, we call it the, the kick me sign. We put a little kick me sign on the back with a little tape. And then at some point it goes out. It's never an emergency, right? We pick the right moment. We pick our fights. See, what else can we bring in that can match that stock and even do better, you know? And then we'll, we'll take it from there. So the first thing that deteriorates is the score. Sometimes the score, this doesn't happen often, but it happened with Peloton. We own Peloton, uh, you know, way back. Excuse me? Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we did. At some point, it was an attractive name, you know. Michael, and, Michael wrote a Peloton in 2020 for a couple, of, couple weeks. Although they brew <laughs> otherwise. But the point is that the data was coming in great, but the active side started seeing the risk with management not taking ownership of the instances that they were having with the treadmills. You know, the right kind of ownership that we thought they should be having. Like, own this thing. Just tell people that you did wrong and you're going to fix this. Instead, they try to blame and pass it around. Like, okay, that's not good. We're out of Peloton. <laughs> Despite the fact that the numbers were okay, the quant layer. But we can't disagree at that level. You know, we have to be in sync. Francisco, last question for me. You, you have a lot of names in your portfolio that, that might be impacted by AI wherever it goes. Yeah, I have, I have a bunch of names, actually. So I'd be, I'd be curious to hear how you would handle the following. So let's say that AI is, is, is not overhyped and that we do get the sort of earnings acceleration that, that the market is hoping to see. What happens if we, if we do get that and these names go parabolic, like not, not like Nvidia right now, but like truly, truly like 1999 type stuff where you you'll see, you know, crazy three standard deviation overbought type of move. Would you would you say okay the earnings are accelerating but we're up I'm making this up this this, this name is up 300% in in the last 5 months we have to take profits like how would you think about that sort of scenario should it arise right and there are two uh two triggers basically for us there number one is that remember we have a position size right so let's say that it, you're right so if the company goes over 6% and it's now it's you know all of a sudden from one day to the other in a week it goes up to 7 and a half you know, we have to reassess, take off some, take, you know, get it back below 6% in such a way that it could keep profiting, but take some off. 
So that's number one, the number one thing. And the other second thing that we would do in that situation is look at the overall risk of the portfolio. You know, if we have these names that are parabolic, you know, these um, AI names that are in parabolic, can we balance the portfolio with some really good financials or some consumer staples, for example? That if the market does this all of a sudden because it's risky, right? They're doing that parabola, that it can actually end up in a good spot. So uh, the risk management kicks in quite often, you know, like it's always there. It's not that we're going to put the risk management uh, constraints on, you know, when the market is bad or when it goes parabolic, it's always on. So the number one thing that will kick in is the position size. That if not the position size, then active management will look at the uh, tracking error. We'll look at the marginal contributions to risk of each one of these companies and see if we're really getting paid for it, you know, and really evaluate the situation for what it is. But again, you know, the most important thing for us is not so much any individual name or any individual sector or, or the matter being. What we want is the whole portfolio to, to do well. Kind of like think about it as a baseball team. Instead of having one or two good players, you want the, everybody at base sits and doubles. As opposed to somebody, a bunch of strikeouts and everybody, every once in a while, somebody gets home run. You know, we don't want that. We want the whole portfolio to do well. So that's the philosophy, basically. So we're really not tuned in on winning because of a particular name. We want to win because we have a strong portfolio. Perfect. Francisco, where can we send people to learn more about your strategy? Uh, you can go to the FM uh, Acceleration website. There's a link for integrated output, and that's where all my strategies are in. And they can always look at the ticker of Morningstar, IAFLX, and in the major platforms, you know, InvestNet and so on. There's research all over for it. All right, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Francisco, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thanks to Francisco. Thanks to FM Investments. Remember, fm-invest.com to learn more and send us an email at onspiritspod at gmail.com.